Thanks, Bren. We've uh, given you an opportunity to meet our, our, a couple of our interns, uh, Sean and Paul. And Sean was uh, playing uh, electric guitar this morning in worship. But we want to really introduce to you our, our, uh, our prettiest intern. So uh, if Becky will come up here, we want to introduce Becky to you. Becky, she just begged for the opportunity to be up front. When I, when I told her she was coming, she said, you're kidding. I said, no, I don't kid. So anyway, so uh, we're excited. Becky's been uh, ministering with us at Grace Hills Church for uh, a considerable amount of time here, but we've uh, brought her on as an intern, working particularly with our youth ministry, but also a variety of other things. In fact, uh, this coming week, you want to be praying, we'll be starting a good news club at a, at a local elementary school, and I just want to let you know, we literally could not do it without you because they wouldn't let just the guys teach a good news club. So give, uh, just give Becky a warm welcome as she uh, continues uh, serving with us. And with that, let's look to the Lord in prayer one more time. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for just the privilege of serving uh, as well as doing life together. And Father, we pray uh, for the opportunities that we have just individually to reach out to our relational world, our oikos, to uh, share the good news with other people. Uh, Father, we thank you also for the opportunity that we have to intentionally uh, penetrate our community, uh, whether it be with children, with uh, a ministry in a, in a school, or whether it's in our neighborhoods as we go into new areas and just uh, befriend people and just pass out literature about you and the church. Or, Father, whether it's, uh, it's just being a light in the midst of the darkness. Father, we just really pray that you might use us to touch lives for you. Uh, now, Father, as we look in your word, we, we pray that we might understand that the witness of Christ is not only individual, but it's corporate, and that you want your church to be what you had uh, planted and uh, died for it to be. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning, I invite you to take your Bibles as we look at a little book that probably is not extremely familiar to most of us, uh, the book of Titus, and I encourage you to find that. If you uh, were able to find First and Second Timothy the last couple weeks, all you have to do is just go one page over and you'll land in, in Titus. Now, as I mentioned to you, uh, Titus is probably not the most familiar book uh, for all of us, though this past week I'm sure you all read through it because we've encouraged you to read the book before we study it and then study it after we preach on it. So next week I give you an easy assignment because the book you're supposed to read in the New Testament is one page long. It's one of those postcards in the New Testament. It's the book of Philemon. So nod your head like you're going to read Philemon this week. All right, so I encourage you just to get in God's Word personally as we... Uh, preach on it, and then study it in our life groups. And again, just to, to let you know, the questions are always there. For some reason, you get sick or not currently in a small group. We invite you to, to go through the questions each, uh, each week as you study God's Word. Uh, Titus is an interesting individual, not only in his particular uh, letter that was written to him, is that he is mentioned a number of times in the New Testament. In fact, uh, at least 13 times, and I'm sure most of us haven't can't recall where in those places in the New Testament he was written about. But he's really, a, again, a companion of Paul as well as Timothy. Timothy was called a son of, of, in the faith by Paul, and so also was a Titus. In fact, he was also called a fellow worker, fellow servant, and he was close to this man who God used to really turn the world upside down with a message of the gospel. In fact, he had been with him on a couple journeys 
most of us have opportunity to take a few days off on holidays or vacations or whatever it might be. Well, the holidays that Paul went on were journeys, but they were kind of described as missionary journeys. And he is recorded to have at least taken three major penetrations into that known world in that time. And on two of the occasions, he took Titus with him. And as he left his first imprisonment, and again, just put a little things in chronological order, as we look at the, what's called the pastoral epistles, which are First and Second Timothy and Titus, even though that's the, the way they're listed in your New Testaments, that's not how they were written chronologically. Paul wrote First Timothy and Titus approximately the same time, and then Second Timothy he wrote at the end of his ministry, and we'll touch base a little bit on that as we close our service together today. But as he writes to Titus, he's really writing to him as, as he has sent him on an assignment. It's probably his third missionary journey. He has just been released from prison, and he goes with Paul. And he goes with Paul. He sends Timothy one direction and Titus another direction. Now, I want to let you know that I'm a very profound preacher. I share with you things you just don't know and understand. But let me, let me give you another real insight. There are basically two types of churches down through history. There are old churches and then there are new churches. Aren't you glad I shared that with you this morning? Well, the reason I emphasize that because particularly there are, there are different nuances to ministering in older churches or newer churches or younger churches. And really we see that in the, the pastoral epistles or the, the personal letters sent to these who, who led the ministries in those areas. He sent... Timothy back to Ephesus, which was an older church, a much more established church, and it had got a little set in its ways, and we're doing some things that weren't quite as God-honoring as Paul, through his spiritual eyes, inspired by God's movement in his life, and, and so he, he, he wrote to Timothy to set some things straight in an older church. But to Titus, he was sending him on a ministry in a particularly different area in which they were newer churches. And there were some things that needed to be set straight there as well. But as I put in the, the message title, which is really the message theme this morning, which I think is even the message theme of the little book of Titus, is that as we think about churches, whether old churches or newer churches, every church in God's heart needs to be a good church. Now, we could use other adjectives, great, awesome, exciting, whatever it might be. But he wants every church to be a good church. And sometimes, as I, as I walk through religious villages, you know, as, and what I'm saying about that is, as I'm around people who talk about churches, you know, they'll describe churches either a good church or a bad church, and sometimes a little bit in between. But what I want to share with you this morning, and it's a very simple truth, is that every church that follows after Christ can be a good church if it makes the commitments that, that God wants it to make. And so this morning, our, our passion is that as we think about what, what Paul wrote to Titus, and in similar ways he wrote it to, to Timothy for Ephesus, and he's writing here to churches in Crete, is this, this is the outline for a, a church to be a good church if it will make the commitments that, that God has planned for the, the people that gather collectively to follow him. So with that this morning, let, let's set some things in order that were lacking 
back then and sometimes can be lacking now as well and need to be either made or refreshed as, as this is what God's plan is for the church to live out its life. Paul writes, as he normally does in the introduction, he, he makes it very theological in verses 1 through, through, uh, uh, through 4. But we're going to pick up the reason this, this letter was written as we pick up verse 5. Uh, Paul writes to, to Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete. So I guess that's pretty plain. This is the purpose of Titus' ministry on this island. And it was a rather large island, still is an island, uh, in the Mediterranean Sea. It's about 160 miles long, 35 miles wide. And the gospel had gone in there initially, maybe even from Pentecost, where there were Jews that had been there, and and, and they came back to their homeland. We also know that Paul had been there and spread the gospel. But he says this, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. And I just want to talk about it a little bit before I kind of get to the, the point here. Set in order is kind of a colorful language in terms of the, the one word there. It comes from a, a, a word with two prepositions, uh, two things to modify the, the verb that you have here. And, and, and one is upon and the other one is through. And it basically intensifies the verb when they have prepositions, particularly in the Greek language. But, but the Greek word here, and the reason I'm spending a little time talking about it, is the word from which we, well, it's the verb orthao in the Greek, from which we get uh, orthodontist or an orthopedic doctor. It's a person who is involved in doing that, which is, which is orthao. And, and what orthao means is to, to, put, to make straight, to take that which is crooked and, and realign it. And what, what Titus was called to do was to go into these churches, and there were a number of churches on this island, and, and he was to, to put things that were crooked and, and, and make them perfectly aligned. He'd take those things that were not put together right and, and put them in their place. And whether it's the straightening of teeth, as an orthodontist does, or an orthopedic doctor who, who might set bones, there are some things spiritually that, that Titus by the power of the Spirit, through the authority of the Apostle Paul, was to go into these churches and and emphasize these things. Well, to begin with, it's it's put pretty plainly. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. And then he goes on, and appoint elders in every city as I suggested for you. Is that what he said there? (laughs) As I commanded you. So to make it a very clear, simple observation of the text, the commitments of a, of a good church to set things in order is every church is committed to godly leadership. And we're going to see this outline in the verses that come from there. But he wanted in that church, in every church that he would minister in, in that particular area, was to appoint those who would godly lead the church. You know, I've already shared something very profound to you, that there are old churches and there are new churches. Let me say something else very profound. There are basically two very important things in a church. One is that there are good leaders, another that there are good followers. You are such a sharp church. You know, really, that's what it all is about. Is that you have people who lead well and then people who follow well. 
But people are not going to be able to follow well unless they are led well. And we've talked about this in the past. It doesn't mean that leaders are, are better people, they're smarter, or, or anything like that. It just means that they have the responsibility to do what God has called them to do. And in this particular case, is to lead. And the leadership here was not to lead, as Jesus said, like the Gentiles, who, who lorded over those who were to follow them. They were to lead in a, a servant leadership perspective. And leadership is all about responsibility. And the important responsibility here was to point the people of God to God, to be obedient to Him and to His Word. So as we think about the commitments of a good church is is to, to have godly leadership. Well, let's look at that real briefly in terms of how leaders who are godly look like and how they ought to be. And the emphasis here is is character rather than skills. Uh, Verse 6. And and by the way, this is not a a novel idea here. In Acts chapter 14, verse 23, if you'd like to put things in your notes to remember later, it was the same pattern in Antioch and Lystra and Lyconium, where in Acts 14, 23, it says, in every church they appointed elders. He describes in this way, and this is the same thing he told Timothy in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I mean, the same idea in terms of the character of godly leadership. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. So as he begins this list, he begins to speak to character. And now when he talks about blameless, he's not talking about perfection. There is no person that is, is without sin. But he says, you need to appoint those who lead where they are not a reproach to the gospel, where people say, well, is that what a Christian is? If that's what a Christian is, I don't want anything to do with Christianity. It's a person who, who can be set themselves up as an example of what it means to humbly follow Jesus. A, a person who's the husband of one wife. This is a person who has one affection in terms of a, a life partner, is not pursuing other relationships. Having faithful children. This does not mean that their children are perfect. It doesn't necessarily even mean that their children know the Lord. But these children are not out of control. Because if you can't manage your house, how can you, how can you manage your own personal house? How can you manage the house of God? So it begins there. Uh, verse 7. For a bishop, and interesting enough, just for free here, there are three words that really describe the godly leadership that is to be found in churches. One is the word elder, presbyteros. The one is bishop, which is episkopos. And and the word elder has kind of what we would say in our own language. It's a person who's mature. There isn't a specific age. You have to be a certain age before you become a leader in a church. But that you are a mature person. You're not a novice in the faith. The, The word episkopos, bishop, and these are used interchangeably. This is a person who who uh, oversees. This is a person who has the ability to, to look at needs, uh, not only in terms of, of polity, but in terms of people and being able to, to see what needs to be supervised. Uh, the other word is pastor, and we'll see that in a moment. A pastor is simply a, a, another word for a shepherd who cares for those around him. So one gives administrative oversight. One gives maturity and the other gives care. 
For a bishop must be blameless, again, as a steward of God, not self-willed. The word idea of steward simply has the idea, this is a, this is a person who, man, who manages well, has responsibility, and when he's asked to do something, he, he gets it done. The idea of not being self-willed. This is not a person who wants to lead because he likes the idea of, of being a leader. And then he wants his way to be done. This is not a self-willed position. This is a God-willed position. Not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. This is, describes a person who is known for their generosity, not their desire to hoard what they have. And then it's interesting, in verse 8 it says, but hospitable. This is a person in which their resources are God's resources. The word hospitable, interesting enough, has the idea of literally to mean lover of strangers. Now, we talk about oikos here, hopefully enough where you're getting the idea this is important, that oikos, we ought to be people who see our relational world as our mission field, that we love people outside the church as well as people inside the church. And godly leadership needs to set that passion and that pattern. In fact, each one of us, again, the, the, the challenge is for each one of us to, to look who is in our oikos, who is in our relational world, who is that neighbor next to us, who is that person that we work with, who is that, that person that maybe we do life together in some recreational way, and, and we are praying for them and desiring to, to reach out to them. The first step in reaching out to your oikos is to love the people in your oikos, is to love the people in your relational world. And after you love them as Christ loves them because he died for them, then begin to pray for them. And then as you pray for them, then look for opportunities to speak to them. We're going to be doing some things next week just to emphasize that. So this week, be praying to identify again the people in your relational world, your oikos, that, that you can be hospitable too. That you can be a person who cares for them. A, a lover of what is good. Sober-minded. Just. Holy. Self-control. You know, leadership brings control, brings order to that which is not in order. And a person can't bring things to order in an organization or even in an organism like the church, unless they have their own life under control. So as, as we think about the commitments of a good church, is that we need to recognize the commitments of a good church is to have godly leadership. And I'll just share this one story. Uh, this is past week as we were uh, sharing with you the opportunity to and the, the need for Paul and Sean uh, to have a vehicle. Well, in the short run, uh, one of your elders, uh, Warren, and his wife, Jeannie, just offered one of their cars. And, and that's where they're, how they're driving these last couple weeks. And, and that's because they have a generous heart. Now, for us, and in, in many ways, godly leaderships, those who have the role of being leaders in the church, they are the coaches of the team. But as often I say in the staff, we are player coaches. You know, we're playing the game as well. So as you think about those who lead in the church, the responsibility of those who follow is to pray for them and, and to support them and to encourage them and, and even speak into their lives as you see need. 
None of the, the leaders here are perfect, but they desire to set a standard of, of falling after God. What defines a good church? It begins with that church being committed to godly leadership. And, and even the role there, if, if you see something wrong in our lives, then, then speak into that. Because we want to set a godly example. But as Paul writes to Titus to, to bring leadership to all the churches on that island, he, he begins with setting things in order to, to taking that which is crooked and making it straight by beginning at, at leadership. But then he goes on. Secondly, not only does every good church committed to godly leadership, every good church is committed to sound doctrine. Now, now, the next passage we're looking at is actually in the description of those who are involved in godly leadership, but it, it really relates to the emphasis that he had for that church. In verse 9, he says this, "...holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict." Now, he was writing that into the eldership qualifications, but he simply says this, as you think of the the action item among all the character qualities of a godly leader, their responsibility is to, to point people to the truth, which is the Word of God. And he described that pointing to uh, people to the Word of God is you need to be able to establish them in sound doctrine. I share with you, as we were looking at the, the writings of Paul to Timothy, that the word sound there comes from, again, kind of a colorful word in our our language, it comes from a word from which we get hygienic. And so this is healthy doctrine. This is, this is bringing the Word of God to bring spiritual health into people's lives. Now, another emphasis of that is found in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, where he says to Titus, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. To bring up people in the Word of God. To put another simple, uh, put simply and plainly, the commitments of a good church is, is a church committed to the Word of God. That above all else, we recognize this is unique to the Church of Christ. There are a lot of things that we do to be light in this community that other people can do. We want to do it because it flows out of our love for God. Uh, take our free giveaway. You don't have to be a Christian to give things away. You don't have to be a Christian. We're gonna, we're, in a loving way, we're going to have a breakfast just connecting with people in our community. But you don't have to be a, a Christian to give away food either. But you have to be a Christian to really have a love for the Word of God. And so the commitments of a good church are those who are committed to understanding and knowing God's truth. Now, as he writes this to, to Titus, he, he wants to get beyond this, the general exhortation to be in God's Word. He already said that to, to Titus, to Timothy, remember? He says, be diligent to present yourself approved unto God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. Remember we talked about that? And then last week we talked about that if you're going to keep the faith, you've you got to give it away. And that verse you're all working on this past week. And the things that you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
But what is it that we need to understand about the sound doctrine that's found in the Word of God? Well, again, because I'm committed to give you, to give you some things that are very, very profound, let me give you a couple very simple categories of what sound doctrine is. Now, hopefully you're getting, I'm, I'm being a little facetious here. The Word of God is, is pretty straightforward if we, if we kind of get the, the idea behind what the author's intent was and is. There are basically two ways you can get people off the, the track in terms of understanding the main message, particularly of the gospel of the, of the Word of God. And that's either by adding to it or by taking things away from it. And that was true back then and it's true today as well. And there were basically two types of, of groups that were primarily doing that. There were those who came from the, the Jewish perspective and all the law that they had been trained in. And then you had the Gentiles who, who had really no religious background in terms of God's truth. And, and they were both kind of pushing and pulling the church to, to go either one way or the other. That whole pendulum effect. Either adding to the Word of God or subtracting from the Word of God. Now in your outlines I put it this way. A, a church that is committed to sound doctrine will confront those who teach legalism and will confront those who teach license. Now, now legalism is, is adding to God's plan for your life, and license, you could say, is taking things away from God's plan for your life. Legalism is adding more commandments that even God put in the text for you to follow and obey, and license is taking away the things that He has put in there. And so we're going to see this a little bit in the text and then, and then move on. Uh, th- let's look at, first of all, confronting those who teach uh, legalism. Look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter, uh, Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 14. Paul writes, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, which is just a polite way to say those from the, the Jewish background, whose mouths must be stopped who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Usually when you want to find something that's going wrong, just follow the money. And that's what was happening back there as well. And then he says, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, and these were probably Jewish people who lived in Crete, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now, how would you like to put that on the mantle of your home? Coming into our home, what we are is we're liars, we're evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That was the the moniker for those who lived in Crete. But then he goes on and gets very specific here. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound, healthy in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Basically what they were doing there, they were adding to what God wanted them to do. You, know, you, you could be more religious than God himself. You, know, you can add so many things, so many rules, that what we are known for is what we're against rather than what we're for. You, you can add all kinds of things to, to how to live the Christian life. And as, as Paul said in Galatians, did, did you come to faith this way? If you didn't come to the faith this way with all the law, then why are you trying to live it out? They had all kinds of fables. Have you ever, have you ever uh, been in a setting where, where you heard someone teach the Word of God? You said, man, I've never, I never heard that before. I, I never saw that. What an, what an amazing thing. How, how do people get that out of the Bible? When I read I never get that. 
Do you know why sometimes you never get things out of the Bible you hear other people say about the Bible? Because it's not there, all right? It's just not there. Uh, it, it, there's, there's what's called a, an allegorical method to look at God's Word where you see all kinds of things that are hidden. And, and look, at, there's so much things you hear on the surface, man. Just get the stuff that's plain, all right? I mean, we can study more and we try to study more. There is a, the understanding of what a particular word means or the history behind it or, or other passages that give light to it. But whenever someone teaches something, say, well, where did you get that? Make them explain how they came to that understanding of the text. For instance, Jewish fables. One of the things, have you ever read any books about the numerology of the Bible? Have you ever read books that have all these numbers that are so amazing in terms of giving insight because this number means this and this and the number means over this and I mean, just throw those books away i mean they're just not necessary there, there are some numbers that have some general pattern in scripture and that's fine but to give you an example one, one number the, the hebrew faith really did not have or the hebrew language did not have numbers basically to the eighth century and so what they would do they would take their letters and and apply a numerical value to them. Well, one of the Jewish fables of that day was, was to say that you could look into the text and find out specific things about individuals by just looking at the numbers in their names. For instance, Abram, um, the numerical value for Abram was 318. Well, let me tell you something probably none of you know today, that 318 in, in Abram's number means that's how many servants he had. Now, if you believe that, i got some property I want to sell you, all right, that I don't even own, all right, is they were being caught up in that. And sometimes when people know things you don't know, you, know, you think somehow they should have some authority over you. And what, what Paul was telling Titus is get people away from that. They're, they're telling things they ought not to tell because that's not the truth. And let's just say this, is anytime we add to the scripture, whether it's there's value in lighting certain candles in a certain way, at a certain place. Get your prayers up to God a little faster. But whatever, you know, using beads to, to connect with God by just going through the beads, then you say, where, where do you get that? And so whether it's from a Jewish perspective or later on it was a Gentile perspective, adding all kinds of ritual to the simplicity and purity, a devotion to Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, then don't follow after that message from an angel of light, which is the evil one. So confront those who are legalistic, and it can come in all kinds of shapes and sizes where people add to the Scripture. I really like what, what uh, Mark Twain said. It's not the things in the Bible I don't understand that bothers me. It's the things I do understand. There's plenty in there to challenge all of us to follow more faithfully after God. But there is the other side of that. Confront those who are legalistic, which are adding things to the text. You need to also confront those who are taken away from the text. And that's how I put, confront those who teach license, which means simply, once, you, once your ticket to heaven has been paid for, then you can do anything and everything you want. And I just want to take that from a few statements out of... Titus chapter 2, verses 11 oh, through 14. Uh, Paul writes, For by the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Uh, we'll just stop there. 
He talks about one of the ways that's going to happen is you look forward to his soon return and you want to be prepared when Jesus comes again. And I think that's just a great challenge for us to look forward to Jesus' return. But, but what I want to emphasize here is you simply say, hey, understand that we're supposed to deny ungodliness, which is anything that does not look like how God would live. And if you want to understand how God would live if he was here, look at Jesus. He said, we need to be people who are not committed to falling after our worldly lust. It's not a matter of simply, if you feel, if it feels good, simply do it. A lust simply means the idea of desire. Just because we want something doesn't mean that's what we should have. That's not something we ought to pursue. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. This is an old story, but Billy Graham was having his first L.A. Crusades, and, and God was using those first Crusades as well as the ones that fall in, in amazing ways. And there were all kinds of people, not only uh, like you and me, that were coming to faith in Christ, but there, were, there was the Hollywood type, and there were the people in all kinds of, of the pockets of, of society that were embracing the message of deliverance from sin and being able to see, see God after, after this life is over. Well, there was an individual that came to faith. In fact, he came to faith and pronounced it pretty publicly, and he started doing a kind of a circuit in terms of giving his testimony. And this individual was a person who uh, was basically a racketeer. He was a mob person. If it was today, you'd say he was, a, he was part of the drug cartel. And uh, after he started giving his testimony, receiving Christ, praying the prayer, uh, walking forward, all those kind of things, they, they began to ask him, so well, what are you going to do now? I mean, <laughs> you were a mob, you're a mob uh, in the mob. Uh, what, what kind of employment are you going to have? And he, what are you going to do for a living? He says, well, I'm going to remain a person in the mob. They go, what? Well, yeah, I mean, all those people came forward. There were plumbers that came forward. You know, you can be a Christian plumber. There were teachers that came forward. You can be a Christian teacher. And there were, there were firemen that came forward. And they can be, a, you know, a Christian fireman. And politicians can be, well, I guess politicians can't remain a Christian. But anyway, is that, no, that's just for free. But it is, he said, how, how can I just be a, a Christian mobster? Can I just remain in this, this whole lifestyle that I'm in? I'm going to heaven, all right? You see, somehow he didn't get it, did he? Is that when, when God really saves us, it's not only that we get a ticket to heaven, it's that we're, we're now committed to live like we're going there. And you can't have Jesus as your Savior if he's not really your Lord. That, that he's the one who calls the shots. That your life is now different. And so these were the Gentiles who, who really came from that culture that were lazy gluttons and liars. And, and that's how they described themselves. And he says, you need to be X, those kind of people. That you never, that you don't longer remain in that kind of lifestyle because Jesus has changed you from the inside out. What's a good church? A good church is committed to God and leadership, a good church is committed to sound doctrine, which simply says that we're committed to, to simply getting in God's word and find out his story and message to our lives and that in our best of our abilities by the Spirit of God, live out that life for his glory and for his honor. Then thirdly this morning, the commitment of a good church is, is every church is committed to the gospel. 
Now, when I saw this in the text or restate in the text and say, well, that's, that's a no-brainer. Why does he have to put that in? Because so often we get astray from the, the main message. You know, the challenge of life in every area of life is to keep, is, is to keep the main thing the main thing. Uh, look what he says here. We'll, we'll start in Titus chapter 3, verse 1, but particularly verses 3 to the end of that section. Remind then to be subject to elder, to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Basically, live it out. But then he says this, verse 3, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Stop right there. See, the message of the gospel, for those who really understand it, and the gospel isn't just for those outside the faith. Sometimes that's what we think. The gospel is only for people who haven't embraced the gospel, haven't put in their faith in God. The gospel is for us as well because it reminds us of who we were. It reminds us that, that we are undeserving of our relationship with God. That we were rebellious toward him, that we were lost in our sin, that anyone that we see outside of Christ, that's who we were. And but by the grace of God, we're now in his family. And then he describes, well, how how does this transformation happen? Verse 4. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared not by the works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. The message of the gospel is a God thing. It's not something that we can do for ourselves. That we are people that are so filthy before God and that we need to be made clean. We need to be washed. As some of our courses and him say as white as snow and and another place in the scripture says whiter than snow the word regeneration means to be brought back to life that we as paul writes in the book of ephesians that we are dead in our trespasses and sins that we're going down for the last time and that god by his holy spirit grabs hold of us and gives us life, not based on our own merits. None of us deserve God's grace. Through whom, verse 6, he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, we need to be a people who are committed to the gospel. I was reading an article by a man who heads up a ministry called Stand to Reason. And he was telling me about, he was talking about being on an airplane, and it's one of the times he didn't want to talk to somebody, but every time you don't want to talk to somebody on a plane is when somebody wants to talk to you on a plane. He had that experience. And the person next to him, interesting, wanted to talk about one of the two subjects that people shouldn't talk about, that's just politics and religion, though I think religion you ought to always talk about. But anyway, he got into this whole discussion. I want to tell you why, why I think you know, faith and religion is just... Uh, damaging to our world. It would just be better we got rid of everything. Because if you study all the religions, he went on and on and on. He, he was describing the story. He said, is that every religion is really the same. 
And if every religion really is the same, then why do we have so many of them? And if they're all trying to get their little group of people following after him, all they do is fight against each other, and all chaos breaks out in this world. Shouldn't we just throw it all away? Because every, basically everything they, they say is, is, is what everybody else says. And he summarized everyone's message of every religious faith is, is described as, as the word love. We ought to love and care about people around us. His response back after he was done speaking, in fact, most of all, he said, I was just listening, I wasn't talking. And the response back was uh, by the man who, who was sitting next to him. He said, don't you agree with me? And he said, I paused for a moment. He said, well, no, I really don't agree with you because I, I don't think you understand the religions of this world. I mean, after I gave you all this description of everything, they do, he said, you, you missed the point. You are taking that which is similar but dismissing everything that is different. There is much described in different ways in every religion where they, they, they want you to care about people. Um, but that's not the main message. I, I was uh, at Fashion Island yesterday, and there was a table out with um, Muslims behind it, and they were, they were giving out free Korans and their, why the Muslim faith, and they were trying to encourage people to be tolerant of the Muslim faith. I think we ought to be tolerant. I think their message is wrong. But whatever it might be, if you've had opportunity to talk with people in, in various faiths, their message is different. For instance, basically the, the, in the Islamic faith, their main message is not love, it's submission. As you look at Buddhists, their, their main message really is not love, but how to, how to deal with suffering. If you look at Hindus, their, their basic message is how to, how to deal with illusion, the illusions that are around us in this world, this existence called life. If you understand Christianity or the gospel, even more than love, though it's, it comes out of God's love, the, the issue in Christianity is forgiveness. You see, the Bible's clear message in the gospel is that we are all guilty. And we're all going to face a holy God. And if we face God on our own merits, it doesn't matter how much God loves us, because of His holiness, we'll be condemned for eternity. And the message of the gospel that needs to grip every one of our hearts that are found in a good church is that everyone needs to hear the message of God's rescue for them available by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That none of us measure up. We, we all need God's mercy and grace. Grace is getting what we don't deserve and mercy is not getting what we do deserve. We deserve God's judgment but because of his mercy and the judgment he placed on his son, we can have life. And Paul said to Titus, you need to remind them this is each one of our condition before we met Christ. We were in need of his mercy. We were in need of his grace. And now we need to get this message out to the ones we love and care about.
the commitments of a good church, godly leadership, sound doctrine, and the gospel. Let's pray. Father, might be someone here this morning that is still on the outside looking in and, and their response this morning is, well, how do I get in? Well, it involves giving all that we have to the one who's given us everything that we have. And, and that can be expressed by simply admitting our need and turning from our sin. The Bible calls that repentance by believing that Jesus fully paid the penalty for our sin and rose again, and then committing to follow Jesus as Lord, God, and Savior. Father, help us to be eager to share that message with others and then be, be available to, to share how you've changed our lives. If there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you in a personal way, I just invite them to, to pray a prayer commitment. Dear Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner and I want to turn from my own selfish ways. I, I do believe that you paid the price for my sins when Jesus died for me and rose again. And right now I commit to follow Jesus as my Lord and my God and my Savior. As we continue to worship my we who already know you, just rejoice in the mercy you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.